create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Things are not always what they seem. The first appearance deceives many. The intelligence of a few perceives what has been carefully hidden. Those words were written centuries ago by the ancient Greek philosopher Plato. Hey, hello, storytellers, and welcome once again to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. I'm excited to announce that our sponsor is Audible. They are offering you, our listeners, a free download of one of your favorite audio books. You get to choose from 180,000 titles and you also get a one-month free trial of Audible's entire service. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. That is www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. For your convenience, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio, as well as the website ChangeYourStoryPodcast.com. Because the theme of the show is Change Your Story, Change Your Life, I've created a free gift for you, my listeners. It is an ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life in Business. You can download it immediately at www.changeyourstorypodcast.com. One of the most rewarding things in this podcast for me is my ongoing dialogue with you, my storytellers, my listeners. Let's continue that dialogue. Keep sending your comments about what you're getting from the show and what you'd like to see in it going forward. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. I promise to read every message I receive and to choose some of them to share with you on the show. Today's guest is a man who discovered that doctors are not always what we perceive them to be. In fact, he saw behind the mask of the entire medical profession on his journey to become a doctor himself. He got his undergraduate degree at Harvard, and he studied medicine at UNC Chapel Hill Medical School. He even did three years of psychiatry residency. But during that time, he had a voice inside of him that kept urging him to search for something more authentic, something that would allow his full being, his true core values, and his creativity to express themselves. His search took him into many interesting places. A self-proclaimed geek, he loves technology, and for a while he worked with a startup helping to create virtual worlds. He kept redefining himself. Eventually, software development led to entrepreneurship, which led him to finding his purpose, guiding others to awakening their true potential. In his own words, he says that he is equally at ease with everyone from billionaires to Tibetan throat singers. His name is Dr. Manny St. Victor, I met him recently, and I immediately took to his energy, his brilliance, his sense of play, and his passion for living. It's my honor and excitement to welcome him to the show today. Manny, I am so glad that you said yes to being a guest on Change Your Story, 
change your life. Yo, wow, Lewis, that was awesome. I think I'm blushing over here. <laughs> Thank you for that. That was that was that was fantastic. Well that was that was fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, yeah. And don't forget, I didn't create that intro. You did. So wow. <laughs> <laughs> let's begin at the beginning, my friend. Where were you born? I was born in Brooklyn, New York, Brookdale Medical Center. <laughs> Oh, cool, man. I am from the Bronx, the other borough. <laughs> <laughs> Who are your parents? Tell me about them. My parents are uh, Emmanuel and Nicole St. Victor. Uh, they were born in Haiti, and they came to the U.S. Um, a few years before I was born. They met here in the U.S., and... Um, that's that's the core of them. My parents are passionate about education, uh, passionate about um, my mother in particular is passionate about intuition. And along the way, both of my parents always uh, instilled in me a desire to reach my maximum potential. What, what kind of work did your father do? Uh, both my parents are accountants. And my dad has uh, spent some time when I was growing up. Uh, he was uh, a realtor. He worked um, a bit in entrepreneurship and real estate. Oh, cool, cool. And yeah. do, you, do you have siblings? Yes, I have a baby brother. He's three years younger than me. Okay, you call him a baby, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's bigger than me. He's taller than me. He's, um, he's bigger than me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, he's uh, quite, quite a figure. Um, he's an attorney. Is he, uh, where does he live? He lives in New York? Uh, he's in Philly. In Philly. He's in Philly. Yeah. Now, kind of describe your childhood. What What was your childhood like? Uh, the first seven years of my life, I was in Haiti. I grew up with my grandparents while my parents finished college. Uh, then I moved to New York, uh, Freeport. We lived in Freeport. Uh, and then we moved to um, Orlando. I remember most of my childhood was filled with puzzles. What I remember the most was that my dad often would sit down at dinner with a puzzle for us to solve, sort of a challenge before we ate, and my brother and I would dive into it. So when when it got to the point in school where they started introducing mind benders and puzzles like that, I immediately fell in love with that, with the whole idea that when something seems unsolvable uh when it's introduced with the promise of a solution but i can't see the solution initially that if i um dive in it's it's fun you feel yourself transforming that there's this fantastic buzz on the other side when the solution shows up and it was right there all along that's to me that seems yeah that's fantastic you know i mean to you that seems what uh that seems to be something that stuck with me and um pulled me through most of and continues to pull me through most of what I do now every day all day yeah actually that's exactly what I was gonna gonna say it's fascinating that what was you know a pastime in a child's game started to uh, feed right into your core values and kind of help you determine who you wanted to be in the world that's fantastic when you were a kid did you dream about what you wanted to be when you grew up? Uh, you know, I think I had a bit of a limited slash constrained view of the possibilities out there. I loved the uh, the promise of public status, respect, and financial freedom and security that was in medicine. I loved science, and I imagined that, um, you know, I imagined that I would have enough money so that I would not have to think about money. It would free my mind to pursue wild puzzles. So I thought of that as being being a doctor. Strange, huh? <laughs> no, no, so how, how old were you when you thought about being a doctor? I don't remember. I mm. don't remember. I, it's one of those things where once you say it one time, like there's two, two aspects of this. I said at one point pretty early that I would go to Harvard and the public response to that was a combination of, oh, that's crazy. Um, look at this kid dreaming. And, uh, and wow, you know, ambitious child. 
as the years passed, the same I got the same response from saying I wanted to be a doctor. And I don't really remember when that started. I just know that after a while, it took on a momentum in life of its own. Hmm. Now, it were, just, you, were your parents also encouraging you to become a doctor? Most definitely, because my parents wanted the best for me. They wanted to see me reach my maximum potential. And uh, they they know, they, they knew and continue to know that when I'm curious about something, I'm going to go after it. You know, because mm. they've, they've seen me solve puzzles, you know, like my dad <laughs> says, he's like, he's like, uh, uh, he told me this was a few months ago when I was, I came to him with a, uh, with a bit of a, um, a struggle on something. I was feeling a bit overwhelmed by a, a, a situation. And he said, you know what, son, uh, I wouldn't bet against anyone against you with anyone's money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so whatever it is that is calling you, there's a reason for it. Just go for it. Uh-huh. And uh, and so when when I wanted medicine and expressed that desire for medicine, I think they immediately thought it was fantastic because of the promise of a um, of, of that life of security, prestige and just they saw it as a vehicle for me expressing myself. But, you know, to be perfectly honest, at some point, um, I have to admit that the external lure of all these accoutrements that go with being a doctor um, probably blinded me to some quieter inner signals within me that at some point would have guided me towards possibly considering other careers as I was exposed to other opportunities. I had, Mm -hmm. you know, again, with puzzles, I get a bit of a tunnel vision when I focus and I go in, you know, the universe disappears when I get a target. (laughs) <laughs> At least it used it used to be like that. I'm I'm I've matured the ability to notice when things are on the horizon, and compare them to where I'm headed to do to make better decisions. But I used to be very much a tunnel vision, knock it out type of person. So they supported me in that aspect, and I think I projected it onto them as um, as them driving me into medicine. The more I think about that, the more it's feeling that way. <laughs> well, you know, you know what I love about this is that I mean, and and your awareness that a lot of the choices we make have to do with stories that are very compelling and very seductive. Yes, because you're talking about following a certain image that's in society, and. It's a. Uh, it's connected to dream. It's connected to mythology, around what it means to be a doctor, and that is yes. very powerful stuff. You know, I mean, I love that Tony Robbins talks about the fact that there are basically six core human needs, and yes. under underneath everybody's actions, we can find at least one of those as dominant, and this may be a way of looking for significance, you know, to need to feel important, needed, wanted, and worthy of love, and you attach that to medicine. Anyway, what do you think are some of the heavy societal pressures on people to become and to remain doctors? I think it's it's a bit of a necessary evil. (laughs) Because the way I look at it now, and I've come to look at it, is that we each... Um, need <laughs> under, underscore need in our earlier less aware states to have a bit of a magnetic force pulling us forward through a lot of the harder things that we're going to encounter but we need something magnetic to make that drive happen um, you know for healthy ego development I um, I see being a doctor as a fantastic promise to pull to pull people including myself out of one, I don't want to say social class because that instantly activates and evokes some thoughts in people, but it pulls you from one one identity group in society into one into another. Mm. Um, what I what I believe in hindsight I could have done better is uh, with a bit earlier self awareness I could have uh, unfolded into a a more whole, and I don't like balance, so I'll say integrated, uh, integrated, uh, complete, nourished person 
and I wouldn't have felt some of the tensions towards so some of the tensions imposed by these narratives. We need the narratives. Not everyone is going, not everyone, well, most people aren't going to be pulled by the real picture. We need that simple symbolic unicorn to have us chase the rainbow with that full energy. And as we mature and as we get closer, we come to realize that, you know, the unicorn with a horse, the rainbow fades and goes off further into the future as you get close to it. But I think we need that story at those developmental stages, the same way some people feel we need a Santa Claus to understand the abstraction of generosity and love. Hmm. Fascinating. Beautifully put. But, you Thank know, you. You, you raise another important question, I think. You say being pulled, they're not pulled by the real picture. And I would actually ask, is there a real picture? I don't know. I'm not really sure that there is. You know, talking about mythology and narratives that pull you, another one is the word Harvard and what, yes. it, rep and what it represents to people. So you probably, as a young man, had a certain image of, you know, like, you know, people were telling you, well, you can, can't get into Harvard. Well, why not? Because they mm -hmm. have, an, they, you know, they have an image of Harvard in their heads that is so out of reach for most people. So what was your image? And then what did you discover when you actually got to Harvard? <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, uh, my image of Harvard was that it would it would solve whatever imaginary problems I had at the time. There was a certain validation. Uh, I imagined that I would be in a place surrounded by people who um, who imagine who, who again imagined at the bleeding edge like I did and weren't constrained by uh, a lot of the cultural limitations that. I perceived that I would run up against when I started thinking about certain things too deeply. That was what I initially anticipated. It was also what I anticipated uh, of medicine too. But um, so when I got there, what initially happened is that the adjustment was a bit tough for me because for a long time I was used to this illusion in my mind that I was the smartest person I knew. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and then suddenly everyone I met was like, wow, you know, it was just uh, it was a time to grow up and go from being from the point of natural talent and to the point of putting my nose to the grindstone. And initially I wasn't prepared for that. I emotionally wasn't prepared for that. I don't think I had the maturity for facing that new story. So, mm -hmm. and, and plus when I got away from home, it was an opportunity to be free, uh, read spelled rebellious. <laughs> so, so I was like, so I have no curfew. <laughs> 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 and, and, you know, and I can do with my money what I want. And <laughs> my parents were, you know, hours and miles away. So, you know, I got, I got caught up in that aspect as well. But uh, let me ask you this. Was, was there some big mythology around the, the whole symbol of Harvard that, yes. that, that, kind, that kind of disappeared quickly when you were actually in that place? I imagined that Harvard would turn me into Superman. <laughs> that, you know what I mean? I, I mean, I was, I was a kid. Uh, I, thought, I thought I would wake up Albert Einstein. Um, <laughs> You know, I thought I would be rich. I thought I'd be powerful. I thought I would be famous. I thought I would be, you know, I thought I would marry a beautiful woman. I would have a house full of cars, a circular driveway at a mansion on the beach. You know, I, in my mind, having accomplished acceptance to Harvard, this, the stamp on my forehead would solve all my problems. This was the, this was the mythology that, you know, right, as, right. as a little bit embarrassed as I am to say that I had that level of naivete around it. Subconsciously, I think that's what my mind was thinking. Hey, you shouldn't be embarrassed, my friend. I mean, I think most human beings are still walking around on this planet uh, following a mythology, and a lot of them don't even know that they're just yes. following a mythology. You know, so uh, 
kudos to you for figuring that out. Now, you began to study medicine. What made you start to recoil from what you were learning and from medical, the medical world in general? Uh, the first thing is that um, from the time I got to Harvard, the pre-meds were super competitive. And uh, initially, I enjoyed and thrived in that kind of competitive environment. But more and more, I had a bit of a creative drive that I believe that because I didn't see how it was going to lead to um, to this ideal outcome, this imaginary unicorn of a life, that I, I suppressed a lot of that. I, In order to score where I needed to score, I... Um, I suppressed a lot of, like, I guess we can call it, to go Jungian about it, I can say a lot of my shadow functions. And that that reemerged as, you know, work hard, play hard. So mm -hmm. I think that a lot of, I began to develop a dichotomy that, um, and, and an awareness of some beliefs that I had that life was work, 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 work. And then this explosive, lavish play where, you know, when I'm not at the hospital, I'll be driving these fantastic cars, et cetera. But more and more that there was something about the the increasing work ethic, uh, the increasing almost guilt and fear driven work ethic, this illusion of scarcity. You know, there's not enough doctors, which implicitly means I should be working more hours because they're going to pay this magical salary. I should be okay with being treated a certain way. And there are some elements of medicine where there's a bit of toxicity in the training process. There's a bit of lack of self-love. There's a bit of scientism where when you get to a certain volume of information, you, you become a bit dogmatic where you feel as if every answer is in the science. What that does is it... I felt it starving me of the elements of the attention and energy devoted towards figuring out what parts of the answer were within me. Mm. I, I increasingly felt hollow. I increasingly felt as if I was pretending to be a certain way to be in a certain circle of people as a way of um, ascending into a certain lifestyle. Mm. In, in parallel to that, it I imagined that there would be this other dark side of the lifestyle where I was still doing the rebellious stuff I love to do, just hoping not to get caught for it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I get you. I get you. I love what a couple of, yeah, I love a lot of what you said, but one thing really jumped out at me that it does create a dogmatic view of, of the world and of, of problems. I mean, yes. very, very often, I and mean, I've spoken to many doctors who are the only modality that they will consider is the one that they learned about in school. And yes. like, for instance, that's why a lot of them, when you present them with, well, what about holistic approach to health? What about a nutritional approach to health? A lot of them will laugh at you and say, well, that's ridiculous, you know, uh -huh. <laughs> because of the dogma that, that they become, well, in a way, victims of indoctrinated <laughs> yeah that's right indoctrinated exactly now you also used an expression that fascinates me that you found that the culture of medicine is very often a culture of shame you yes. might have you touched a little bit on that but can you elaborate even more the truth of it is that or my truth of it is that um you'll we attract a projection of who we are and end up creating a, a tribe of that around us. So I'm thinking that I managed to find the group of people within medicine who had a bit of a sense of a repressed version of some shame within them. And we projected it into our work ethic. Uh, in medicine, a lot of times you feel a bit ashamed to be sick you feel a bit ashamed when you don't know. You feel ashamed to ask for help. Um, a lot of the conditioning involves a bit of humiliation and hazing because a lot of us, um, a substantial amount of us, uh, again, like uh, Doc Nicole mentioned um, in, in our talk, 
well, actually, Doc Lisa mentioned this. It's we we future pace a lot. We live in a in an imaginary ideal future, and we're able. And because we believe that it's there's hard work involved in that future and lots of sacrifice, we misdefine that sacrifice in a way that allows um, those in the position of promising um, to be the gatekeepers to punish us a bit, a bit of a hazing almost fraternal uh, fraternal ritualistic approach wow that hopefully mm. yeah. yeah yeah that's great because that's i'm gonna great. go through this because the harder this is that the harder the things that i'm able to go through that you don't break me to rebuild me the more amazing i'll be on the other side the more powerful the tougher the more loved by that secret part of society that that you're keeping me from with all this work Wow, so, you know this is yeah. very this is very masochistic. You know, uh, I, you just brought to mind. I saw a movie uh, by Bergman years ago called uh, "The Seventh Seal," and okay. uh, and of course it takes place during the Middle Ages, and it's the Middle Ages during the the plague. The plague is r- ravaging the world at that time. People are dying everywhere. And there was an order, quote-unquote religious order, called the Order of the Penitents. And what these people would do, they have a scene in there where they're actually walking in a line together as a group, and they're carrying these, they're like whips, and they're whipping themselves (laughs) to create pain because they feel that that is the way to, you know, purify themselves to yeah. because they're sinners and they've got you know that's the ultimate of shame. Wow, mm-hmm. you just, you just took yeah. me right. So I guess the medical a lot of that training is immersed in the Middle Ages. <laughs> it feels that way. It's a bit archaic. It's a bit yeah. archaic. And yeah. here's the thing about it, though, and this is a bit of me maturing into a perspective that uh, allocates some of the personal responsibility to myself. At the same time, there there was a circle of people who, I remember them from med school looking back, who took on a more healthy, integrated, uh, creative, expressive, curious approach to, um, to training and then eventually to practice. So this is where I think that... Uh, the lens with which I went into my training and intended to go into my practice, the set of limiting beliefs that I came into the whole thing with, uh, led me to, per- to, to perceive that experience in one way. I have many friends who look back and they thoroughly enjoyed their medical training uh, mm. because we sat in the same class, but really they didn't feel the imposition of the um the narrative on their identity because to them each challenge allowed them to unfold a new part of themselves Mm. whereas to me yeah to me a lot of the time after a while i don't know at some point my self-esteem took a hit or something and changed the way in which i process reality after a while each challenge instead of being an opportunity to grow further and express more of my future self became a bit of a threat to end my career and a bit of ego death. Mm. Okay. And now, so what, what part of you, what parts of you were being suppressed or denied in that environment? Well, I like to be creative and say whatever the heck comes to my mind, honestly. (laughs) Mm. I, I like for, I like to be very prepared, but I like to be spontaneous. I, uh, I am increasingly more empathic where a lot of times I pick up on the nuances of stuff that's going on in a situation that aren't um, that aren't validated by the constraints of whatever scientific method at the time, mm-hmm. but deserve the attention and don't necessarily do well under don't thrive under. Uh, an analytical reductionist perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times I want to express myself without giving you a stack of data and which set of studies um, demonstrate that it works. Sometimes I just want to give someone a hug or tell them a joke. Um, 
or whatever, sit in silence. And um, to me, increasingly, there was an architecture that I found myself immersed in that was more about um, checking boxes, uh, getting a visit done within a certain amount of time, uh, making sure I wasn't saying anything that was going to get me sued, uh, making sure I was keeping track of all the latest advances. And it felt to me as if there was a lot of intermediation between me and this person across from me who was in pain and really just wanted someone to hear about the pain they were in. Mm. Specifically, you know, especially in psychiatry, to be sitting across from people um, who are expressing to me their story and be more preoccupied with how tired and sleepy I am and how big this patient patient um, stack of um, dictations and discharges and the fact that the pager is, keeps going off and I have to run downstairs to take care of five more people. The fact that there's someone in the in, you know, one of the patients has um, possibly murdered someone and is a threat to me. These, to me, it felt as if I was focusing a lot of my attention on the darker, more negative aspects of humanity and that I wanted to be in a space where I was helping people thrive, become more beautiful and creative, and at the same time, unfolding more of myself. And I wanted to work with people in a more supportive, intimate way, where each interaction with them helped me get to know myself better mm. while helping, helping them become their best selves. Yeah, I get you. I get you. It was, uh, yeah. it was too constraining. It was like they were trying to make you fit into... Um, uh, a wardrobe that just didn't fit you, man, at all. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And it's um, by necessity. I mean, the field needs some sort of structure so as to deliver that service en masse. It just wasn't for me. I get you. I get you. And uh, it's great that you have that kind of clarity about it. Now, you mentioned something else that's fascinating. You said that there's a kind of sales pipeline in the world of medicine. Can you explain that? Um, well, there's a sales pipeline in everything. Yeah. <laughs> every 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 role in society is designed such that certain people with certain unspoken, unmet needs project their, um, and I think the word I've seen used for it is symbolic self-completion onto the product. <laughs> you know, in order to pay med school right now, what is about 50, 60, or 70,000 a year? <laughs> uh, undergrad runs, runs north of 50,000 a year. In order to, uh, and talk about time investment, in order to spend those, what was it, four years of undergrad pre-med, four years of medical school, four years of a psychiatry residency, a few more years of fellowship, in order for someone to subject themselves to that pipeline while watching their friends on the sideline make six figures at youth <laughs> and live the life, um, you've, you've got to be, you've got to have bought into some story that is hooked so deeply into your identity that those promises downline are either so delicious you're not going to turn back or you've developed, you've put so much, you, you know, you've sunk so much cost into it, so much energy into it that the thought of thinking of the thought of even considering undoing it is so painful that you stay focused. And to me, that's a sales pipeline. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I read at one point that uh, if you're effective in terms of your sales flow, you, uh, there are certain do doors that you close behind a person so that, you know, we know that decision has been made and it's time to move to the next step of the journey. Mm -hmm. It felt the same to me in medicine where at one point it was, um, you know, going back to Harvard, it was like, okay, I, I started Harvard in 1991. The internet, Java, which is a language that is the backbone of a lot of the internet, wasn't there until 1995. At the time, I had, by the time I was stepping through the pre-med stuff, I, the sales pitch was in full effect. You know, you look at a lot of marketing now, it's community-based marketing. They attract you to a community of shared values, and it becomes more about the experience with members of the community and the sense of identification than it is about the actual product. Mm. Mm -hmm. you know? So medicine has done an effective um, job at attracting those who want to be healers, those who want to have high respect in society, and those who want to... Um, make a lucrative income and are willing to blood, sweat, tears for it, you know? Mm-hmm. I like that. Now, you had another fascinating experience in your life when you went to work for casinos, didn't you? 
Yeah, yeah. I, now, I, I, I've done video game software for casinos, slot machines and stuff like that. Now, here's what's fascinating. You did this after your residency in psychiatry, correct? Yes, yes. So explain to our storytellers, that's what I call my listeners, the relationship that you found between psychiatry or neuroscience and casinos. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll take it back a bit even to um, some of the uh, underpinnings of that. When I left my psychiatry residency, uh, like er- super early, three days into my third year, I joined a virtual world startup. They were building an entire virtual world, uh, tar- a sports-based virtual world for kids where kids would immerse themselves in these worlds and they would play a lot of little mini games. Within that space, what I found is that once someone logged onto our website, we immediately immersed them in a story, a story with which they, with which they identified. And as such, they would play these different roles within it and make these choices that essentially they were, they were acting through who they are and who they want to become. So that was happening symbolically within the virtual world. It was just nested, deep, subconscious stories that people were exploring about themselves in this game space. Um, as time passed uh, and I moved to different startups, increasingly I found that these stories uh, and the subconscious archetypes they trigger are the mechanism for us feeling this engagement, this magnetic pull. Um, so... I studied pretty deeply how the mythology and the engagement were interconnected and what was really happening underneath. Uh, with that, as I um, moved through different software jobs, because you know markets crashed and investors dried up, and so I moved towards some more traditional software jobs where it wasn't as bleeding edge virtual worlds. As I moved to the casino aspect, it became about how can we make these narratives that people experience, even if it's just a five, a five, um, five a position slot machine, like, you know, one, two, three, four, five, five cherries pop up, uh, you know, five unicorns pop up, uh, five mermaids pop up. What uh, with the music in the background, with the lights, with that whole wave of simu- uh, stimulation, what is the player experiencing? So increasingly, as I was um, developing casino games and um, a lot of the um, I've worked for lottery companies like internationally and stuff uh, from here, but stuff that was sent internationally, it became more about what story is the user experiencing with each decision they make in gameplay. So that was that was and continues to be one of my fascinations with each action and each choice we make. What story are we unfolding? And and with that, I gather, the aim was the more immersed you can make the person in the story so that their identity is actually be- becomes part of it, then the, mm-hmm. more, the more addictive the, the, yes. the, the casino game becomes. Yes, yes, because they're swapping, they're swapping dollars for meaning. Ah, wow. You know, you, you, you see every time they pull that slot machine, you're thinking they're after the quarters. <laughs> but on a subconscious level, each each round of these of these lights, of these these symbols, whether it's um, there's one game that's fascinating in the casinos. It's like uh, every time you pull the slot machine arm, you're at a pool party and sometimes inner tubes show up. Sometimes uh, a beach ball shows up. Sometimes um, a cocktail drink shows up. Sometimes a flirty lady in a bikini shows up, you know. <laughs> Um, and you're trying to get five of these things to win this big jackpot. But mm. inevitably, what you're what you're doing as you're spending time and pouring money to this uh, game is you're not you're not just looking at five five lines or whatever. You're you're dreaming about, OK, this big win, which sub which on a conscious level is I want all this money. But, you know, it's low probability. Meanwhile, every time you're, you're pulling that 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 arm on that machine you're still telling yourself the story where you're the guy with all this money at this high-end beach party. Mm, I love this, you know, man. And, and, and that's worth a ton of money. I mean, oh, you, yeah. can, you cannot afford it now, but in this casino today, you are the man. That's right. Well, I love this because, I mean, as you know, uh, this is my passion, uh, why I created a, a podcast called Change Your Story, Change Your Life, because it's stories are playing 
uh, in our daily lives on constantly, and many people don't recognize that. This is fascinating. Now, I know that you're passionate about not trading your time for dollars. And yes. what talk about that. Why? What drives that passion? I I like to be left alone to think. And uh, I'm the kind of person where when the muses hit me, I want to be able to express that. And there are two layers to that. Sometimes the expression doesn't please those who are in a position of cutting you a paycheck. And sometimes when the muses hit me, it means I want to spend a couple of days sitting quietly blowing spit bubbles. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just, you know, I, I want an opportunity to be alone with my thoughts and see what emerges in the quiet. And mm -hmm. to me, uh, the constraints of X number of hours are connected to um, this lifestyle leads to a situation in which instead of being deeper and more passionate with each um, with each choice of words, with each uh, interaction, with each stroke of the brush or whatever, I'm more focused about X number of hours that I'm there. To me, this becomes more of a quantity approach to to creation than a quality approach. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah. I'm being I'm being rewarded for being there and being threatened that when when I'm no longer there, it doesn't matter how fantastic the value of the elements that I've created in the moments where I was at my peak and most connected with with my core um, with my core. Um, I keep saying, I keep thinking muse, my core, the core energy there. If, if I'm no longer to put in those hours, then it's back to the basic lifestyle. And to me, I want to, um, with each passing moment, be more able to create something more beautiful and create something that I set free. And a lot of people are able to benefit from essentially this snapshot of this moment in time when I was just moved to be at my best, whether it's for five seconds that we captured or, or whatever, to me, that's much more powerful and allows me to make a far further reaching. Is it farther or further? <laughs> a, 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 an impact that reaches uh, a much further, I think is mm. where I'm looking for. No, yeah. man, I, I, listen, this, this is great. This is really great. Cause you're talking, you're driven. Your passion is to, Top priority is to create value. And yes. and so now my next question would be, why is it more rewarding for most people and and uh, and and scary to earn money by providing value as opposed to trading your time for dollars? I think then it touches into the self-esteem. <laughs> um, when when you're providing value and it's about it's about, you know, value is a construct of how much passion, how much expertise, how much presence did you put into whatever it is people are touching. And it's easy to mistake, to, um, to identify with the craft and identify with the product to the point where you, um, well, for me, where I can't hear the feedback or the feedback um, is insulting and threatening. Mm -hmm. So it's easier if I'm here at work, it's, it feels safer to say, if I'm here 40 hours this week, you know, you're going to pay me hundred bucks an hour. There it is. And if I grind out another 20 hours this week, I can do overtime. You're going to pay me time and a half. And if you choose not to pay me because you didn't appreciate it because you couldn't see this value deep within me, I'll have my lawyer sue or I'll quit and find someone else who can. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, when you hit a certain place of peace and clarity and a larger understanding of what we are a part of and where it's headed as a bigger, more holistic um, collective picture, then it becomes a matter of just coming to the truth with yourself and seeing how much do people value me as I am now and who are the people that value me most and what is the process of finding them and then listening to their feedback such that I'm willing to grow and adjust to be more valuable to them. 
Mm-hmm. I love yeah, that, that, man. You, you really hit on the challenge that an entrepreneur is faced with because it means that you've got to be courageous enough to and humble enough to be able to acknowledge that you've got to deliver the goods. You can't just hide under this umbrella of a safe job. Yeah. That's fantastic, man. I love it. Now, do you invest in formal personal development training at all? Uh, yes, I have two two coaches. I have um, uh, what I would consider my mindset coach, Dr. Maisha Claiborne, and I have a personal business coach. Uh, he calls himself the execution mentor, Kellen Flukiger. So um, when each of them gives me a different window into developing who I am and, well, thriving and, and generating wealth from it. Mm-hmm. And so they provide uh, guidance and accountability for you. Now, what about formal personal development uh, courses and, and seminars? Are there any of the thought leaders like Anthony Robbins around that you follow? Yeah, the last few days to weeks, I've been listening to Anthony Robbins stuff more because uh, I'm seeing there was a time when I could kind of on a surface level understand level understand his models, but there were elements of it that weren't necessarily locking into my deeper being. But for some reason, over the last, I say a couple of weeks, I've been um, honing in on Anthony Robbins stuff. Uh, in the past, uh, what has helped me a lot to think through stuff has been, um, I love the architecture that Napoleon Hill lays out. Uh, what is uh, that? What is that? Uh, well, his the things that he describes in Think and Grow Rich are essentially uh, what I've found to be this, similar to models of cognitive behavioral therapy uh, and social cognition. Mm. So it's just, um, it sounds a bit, uh, when you listen to it initially, it sounds like he's, speaking general inspirational information but with repetition what starts to emerge is that he's giving a step-by-step guide to doing the introspection to developing the effective relationships to delivering on the promise uh and to self-awareness mm. um yeah and i followed that up with some of bob proctor's work who else uh robert green's mastery Oh, now you're now you're talking about a really controversial guy. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. I I love I love his stuff. It's not for everybody, man. Um, well, some of his ahead. early stuff seems a bit egomaniacal. Like what? <laughs> well, power. And I've had some people who I've suggested that they read the Art of Seduction, and um, they've give me the feedback that they felt it was manipulative. <laughs> Listen, I, let me, I just went through the entire audio uh, version of The Art of Seduction. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love it. And it's very, it's subversive. And, mm -hmm. and it is not something that I could recommend to, to many people because they if somebody is operating in this mindset of political correctness, mm -hmm. they, 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 will, they will start to hyperventilate when they hear that stuff. Exactly, exactly. And the thing is, he leads with um, uh, a narrative of sexuality and sensuality. Even the narrator has this, this role in his R's that it just, it feels as if he's trying to do things in my ear with his tongue. You know what I mean? Oh, no, that, absolutely, absolutely, man. That, that, yeah. that, that narrator was chosen because of his ability to uh, capture the style of, mm -hmm. of the book, of the, the, the essence of the book. But yeah, uh, anyway, Mastery, he offers some great insights into human psychology and, and, uh, mm -hmm. If we want to grow, so I yeah that, that excites me that that you like that stuff. Well, what what have you been listening to uh, by uh, by Anthony Robbins that you really love? See, I've been I've I've been listening to it on on I found it on YouTube, which I, I don't know if it's taboo to say that. <laughs> no, but, um, no. 
Yeah. So uh, is it Unleash the Power Within? Yeah. Or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've had that on repeat because uh, I'm I'm starting to see some of the architecture in that and how it fits into the existing schema that I have in my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point where I'm I'm feeling more confident in not just trusting, but beyond trusting, believing to the point of um, acting with courage. And and the, what about Bob Bob Proctor? Or was it? Um, well, you were born rich? Born rich, exactly. What yeah. I love about Proctor's work is that he puts a layer on Napoleon Hill's work. Um, and really, not spoiler alert, but he's walking through the emergence of inductive reasoning in an individual and just pointing out that each of us, with the awakening of the ability to do this goal-directed, value-driven consciousness really this this choice making and creating that that's the mechanism to finding your your wealth you as an individual you know oh yeah that's, absolutely that's what i loved about bob proctor's stuff do, do you know where he's from uh no i don't he's canada from, right it's, it's got well, canada sound too. not only canada he's from the city i live in he's from toronto and oh also <laughs> and and he as a young man, when he didn't know what he was doing, when he was basically a guy, by his own definition, he was a loser. Mm-hmm. He was a fireman in the neighborhood that I live in. And awesome. he, he used to spend his time hanging out with other losers, drinking and complaining about life. And then he woke up and look what he turned into. Yeah, that's amazing. I remember him saying he he hung out with, with the losers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he's a, he's a key. And he still lives here, too. He lives in Toronto, yeah. That's awesome. That's a beautiful coincidence. You know, I have a wonderful experience with him. He's a very He really is a very giving man. I remember listening to him speak one night at the University of Toronto. And he had this little book in his hand that he was reading from. And I was fascinated by it. So at the end, I actually went up onto the stage... And uh, he was greeting people, and I spoke to him and thanked him. And I said, where can I find this book? He smiled. He handed it to me. He said, here. And he gave it to me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, he just gave me the book, man. See, you found it, man. You asked for it, and you found it. (laughs) That's amazing. I know. So what about now? You have a movement going called... Uh, I'm going to give the letters T A Q M. Tack them, yes. <laughs> Tack them. Tell us what did, what those letters mean. Uh, this is thinking about quitting medicine. Okay, and, and you've, had, you've actually written a book, right? Yes, I brought together uh, thirteen authors, um, thirteen stories, one journey is what we like to say. I've brought together thirteen um, author, physician authors, some lawyers some who are physician lawyers, some who are physician entrepreneurs, and one other trauma surgeon slash MBA to write the forward. So 14 authors to share their story of how, as they um, found increasing clarity with who they are, they started planning for ways to practice medicine in a non-traditional way, and in some cases, making a full exit from medicine. Mm. Um, and it's it's amazing that you actually brought the Bob Proctor topic out of me because a lot of the ideas that I wanted expressed uh, in thinking about quitting medicine is that it's about awareness. It's about waking up. It's about um, um, initially dulling the pain of, of these reactions to fear that a lot of us were having this, this identity threat, this feeling that you had to stay within a certain box to be lovable, worthy, and to deserve this medicine money. Mm-hmm. Which really, to be perfectly honest, was a limited amount of money once you wake up to all the possibility outside and not trading hours for dollars. Mm-hmm. So uh, the goal of the book is to, um, uh, and I asked each, uh, Nicole and I, uh, Doc Swiner, Doc Swiner and I asked each author to pour out themselves in, in their chapter. Uh, and with the goal of them revealing these different elements that, again, we often keep hidden, that the elements of life that don't fit the doctor prototype and as such we suffer in silence 
to the point of where I've mentioned to you, the physician suicide rate is up to 400 physicians a year committing suicide now. You talk about in the United States, right? Yes, yes. That's yeah, uh, that- My med school class was 160 future docs. So that's two med school classes and a handful of docs left over committing suicide every year right now. Whoa, that, that's, that's, that's huge. Now, what I'm getting to, I'm, I, I want to really emphasize this. If you, when you listen closely to what Dr. Manny is sharing, I think people should recognize that this book would be transformational even for people who have nothing to do with medicine because it's about self-realization. Yes. Now, where, where, can, where can they find this book? Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Thinking about quitting medicine is on Amazon. And it did hit Amazon number one bestseller in three categories, which was awesome. <laughs> wow. Is there an audio version? Not yet, but I've been flirting with it and talking the team into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. You really should have yeah. one. Yeah, because the vision is that each year going forward, we're able to find 13 more doctors to tell their story. Well, you know what? I mean, I just had this idea. I mean, for an audio version that would be interesting is that you have each doctor uh, do their own audio version of their story instead of having one person read it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be the most impactful and powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other favorite books besides your own that you could recommend? Uh, right now, um, as you know, because this is where we met, uh, Christine recommended The War of Art to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, I think that's by Pressfield. I'm not that, sure of the, of the, of the, of the author, but I, I'm familiar with the book. I may even have it on Kindle because I have yeah, so many books. That is books a beautiful on- book. All right, the war of art yeah. and what else? Yeah, and the importance of that one is he systematically deconstructs every excuse you could possibly have to action, every distraction, every slice of resistance. He explains it Woo. and how to recognize it. So after a person, I and I'm one where I do books on a loop. Where when I find a book uh, that it's the right time to spend time with it, I'll spend a week where um, I, I have a bedtime ritual where I do an audio book at bedtime. And um, when I doze off, when I wake up the next day, what I do is I, when it's time to listen again, I find the last part that I remember before I doze off. What that I found that does is it allows me to take in the info in this relaxed, almost almost dreamlike state. Hmm. I and, like that. And, and yeah, and I used to worry about oh, I'm going to fall asleep and miss the important parts, but. What I found, on the contrary, is if I spend a a couple weeks with a book, just on auto repeat, on repeat, um, where I go to sleep with it for a few days and I rewind and then I play again from where I left off and listen again, I develop a deeper relationship with the book. And then later on, on an audio form, and then later on, I, with the knowledge of the author, I um, I get to um, to look at the written version and it does something different when I retrieve the info through reading it. It's, it's, it's been an amazing process. I've been doing it for the last couple of years. It's, it's lovely. It's been working well for me. But I love that. that book is particularly delicious for that. Because mm. at any point in time, the main point of the book, and actually the title of his subsequent book, is Do the Work. Ah, Do the Work. You know? Yeah. He's like, the hardest part of writing is not the writing. It's sitting your tail in the chair. <laughs> you know? you know? He's like, so sit down. You know He's what? Like, that's so true. You know, this morning, because I've been, I have so many ideas right now that are just swimming around my head, and I force myself to take out a blank sheet of paper and just begin writing them down. And that was, for some reason, the scariest part. And then when I started, yeah. it became easy. Uh, yeah. That's fascinating. So, uh, yeah. what about one more, just one more book besides War of Art? Um,. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with a different one for you. I'm going to go with a sci-fi one. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think Neil Stephenson, I think is his last name. Uh, his, he's got two books that blow my mind. One is called Diamond Age. Diamond, and sci-fi. Di- yeah, Diamond. Diamond Age. Okay. The Diamond Age. It's about a, it, it's called a primer. It's a book that has artificial intelligence in it that, 
uh, it adjusts to the life of the reader. So the story in the book changes as the reader is living and reading the book. Oh, come so, on, come on. And yeah, man. And the young, this, it's what happens is a really wealthy person commissioned this genius to create this book, and the genius. Um, and I, I'll tell you this part. It's not a spoiler because it's just kind of the, the foreplay of the book. The genius steals a copy, not a copy, but steals the, the, um, the, and it's futuristic. So they have sort of uh, a way beyond our current concept of a 3d printer. <laughs> so the genius steals enough of sort of the DNA of the book to create one for himself. And then yeah. there's a third copy that goes to someone else and, uh, gets stolen by this really poor girl. And so, uh, in a, in a really abject poverty type of abusive situation. And so this poor girl, she spends her whole life reading this book. And the beauty of it is that as the book evolves, she becomes this, this, um, this amazing human being as a result of what the book is watching her experience. And, and I'll give you one more slice because the books are so advanced, really, there's a narrator somewhere way off, um, uh, somewhere really around the world, just about is the best is how I imagined it. Who is um, voice narrating the aspects of the book? The narrator ends up the voice of the narrator gets embedded in all the different characters that the child experiences in this three D immersive book. You know what you have just described? I got to get the book now because this is the ultimate example of change your story, change your life. You realize that. Yeah, as as I thought it, I was like, yo, that would be the perfect book for Lewis. <laughs> yeah. Yes. As a matter of fact, I should just get it and read it uh, on a podcast one day. Read sections of it. That's fascinating. I love it. Thanks, it's man. It's a beautiful book. It will, it, will, it will transform you. What about a favorite quote? I know that you have one of your own that I like. I'll read it. Waking up uh, is sure. hard. Waking up is hard to do, but it is the most rewarding experience. That's Dr. Manny. Now, what about another quote? Yeah. My favorite quote is, I'm going to mix it up because I've, I learn quotes by concept and then I forget the specifics, but it's, it? learn as if to live forever, live as if to die tomorrow. Wow. Who said that? I, I'm going to say the Dalai Lama, but I uh, no, it's not. It's not. It's Mahatma Gandhi said it. Mahatma Gandhi said that. Say it again. Learn as if to live forever, live as if to die tomorrow. Wow. And I might be butchering the quote, but that's the ethos I pulled from it. And as such, what I've been repeating to myself for the last few years. Well, so you know, you know <laughs> <laughs> I'll find the exact quote by, you know, I'll ask my friend Google. But um, yes. that is really, really good. So now, how can people contact? No, I didn't ask you another important question. Where do you see yourself in five years? deeper in my own skin. <laughs> um, in five years, I expect, I anticipate and intend to uh, be traveling the world, speaking with people passionate enough to work one-on-one with me to find their truth. That's, mm-hmm. that's my mission. Fantastic. And how can people contact you, Manny? Uh, they can send me an email I, I'm a, I use a good old Google email because that's my favorite. Uh, it's Manny, M-A-N-I dot S-A-I-N-T V-I-C-T-O-R, St. Victor at mm-hmm. gmail.com. Okay. And if they want to follow me, they can follow uh, Manny St. Victor on, um, on the Dropout Doctor is um, what my page is called on Facebook. The Dropout, can- doc- the dropout Doctors? Yes, the dropout doctor, singular. Doctor, okay. Uh, that's yes. on Facebook. And yes. do you have a, another website at all? Uh, Thinking About Quitting Medicine is, is uh, the website for uh, Thinking About Quitting Medicine book. We're and, in the process of developing my personally branded website. And but, thinking, um, thinking About Quitting Medicine, is that dot com? Dot com, yes. Beautiful. Okay, my, my friend, any final thoughts? Well, I'm I'm thrilled um, that thrilled about the adventure that our new friendship promises. So am I, Manny. And what's exciting to me is that what you've delivered today with such passion and clarity for people who are paying attention to this, it's it's going to be, it can be life transforming if they're open to Thank it. Thank you. 
So thank you ever so much. Thank you so much, Liz, for having me on. Manny, it has been so much fun. Storytellers, thank you again for joining us on another incredible inner journey. Manny has just left me with so many things to think about and to use in my own growth. And I'm certain that that's going to be the case for you as well. So remember, pay this forward. Let people know that they can hear this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at changeyourstorypodcast.com. And of course, at the website, you will get a free gift by simply downloading the ebook that I've created for you called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. And by now, you know that we're not just talking about how to tell a story superficially. We're talking about how to tell your story to yourself and to the world so that you can transform into the best possible you. Another important thing, Manny mentioned some life-changing books. Robert Greene, for instance, is revolutionary. He can be very disturbing, but his books are profound. And if you're open to his ideas, you have the courage to listen, your life can change from what he offers. You can go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and download one of these otherwise relatively expensive audiobooks absolutely free and get a one-month free trial of all of Audible service. Don't hesitate to do that. I would love to hear from you guys. Let me know what you've gotten from today. Also, let me know what other things you would love to get in future podcasts. Send your your voice to me in an email at lewis at changeyourstorypodcast.com. Thinking about the things that Manny touched on today so eloquently and profoundly, ask yourself in the coming week, am I living in my own story or am I living in someone else's story because I feel that I should? Because society has told me that it's the right story for me to be in, even though something in you says, no, this is not where I belong. If that's the case, have the courage to look at it and to transform it. Begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.